You are listening to the Happier at Work podcast, and I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. This is the podcast for HR and business leaders. We talk about things like leadership, well-being at work, diversity and inclusion, and the future of work. The market segment of people with disabilities and their friends and families actually makes up approximately 8 trillion US dollars worldwide. So when you say that figure to companies, they're like shocked. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Happier at Work podcast. My guest today is Shonad Omuraku and I first came across Shonad when I was at a TEDx talk in Trinity College Dublin a number of years ago now and I was so inspired by what she had to say. We connected on LinkedIn. We have been in touch in the meantime and she was actually also part of the Common Purpose program and we met through there for a second time and so we've been talking about recording this podcast for a couple of years probably now at this stage definitely since pre-COVID times anyway. Now Shonid has been promoting employment rights of disabled people for more than two decades regularly contributing pieces across news, media, national radio and television. She has a certificate from the International Disability Management Standards Council, as well as recognition from the Canadian National Institute of Disability Management and Research. She helps organisations embrace disability and difference by providing creative solutions to disability inclusion at work, facilitating inclusive recruitment processes and advising on policy. She co-founded the Amputee Disability Federation Ireland, represents independent living movement Ireland on employment issues at government level and was honoured to be elected to the ILMI Board of Directors. She currently lectures at Maynooth University on disability studies and provides HR support for members of the Irish Small and Medium Business Enterprises Association. Nicknamed the Bionic Businesswoman when she received her new Bionic arm in 2017, she uses the moniker as her social media handle as it's much easier for others to spell. Absolutely love that. And I know you're going to so enjoy this conversation that I had with Shonid. We could have spoken for hours. It's such a high energy and I really hope you enjoy it. As always, please stay tuned till the end and I will do a synopsis of the key points that we made. Do connect across social media. On LinkedIn, I am Aoife O'Brien, A-O-I-F-E O'Brien, or Instagram, happieratwork.ie. Shonid, you are so welcome to the Happier at Work podcast. I know we have been talking about doing this for a long time and finally we are together. So I'm so looking forward to our conversation. We had a quick, well, I was going to say quick, it's not, it wasn't, it was quite a lengthy actually, pre-recording chat and I know that we're going to have a really 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 great conversation today. For the purpose of listeners do you want to give your, give a little bit of background about what you do, how you got to where you are today, a little bit more about yourself and then we'll kick off the conversation. Sure my name is Shonid Omuraku, most commonly called the bionic businesswoman actually since I got my new bionic arm and um, got a few years ago now and that's what I end up using as my social media handle because nobody can actually spell or pronounce or remember Shonid Omuraku. Um, it also means I can't be hunted down on social media apart from LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> what I do 
is I've been promoting the employment of disabled people for many years, whether it's uh, contributing pieces in news media, radio and television, when I used to present the RT1 um, television programme 360, and I also presented outside the box on RT Radio 1. But really, I'm a disability management professional. I have certification from the International Disability Management Standards Council, as well as recognition from the Canadian National Institute of Disability Management and Research. And I've worked in HR um, in all kinds of places with the rehab group, training and supporting approximately 200 employees with disabilities, and also on the AHEAD WAM program, the Willing Able Mentoring program, where we placed, employee, we placed graduates with disabilities with employers of different kinds and supported both the disabled graduates and the employers to get to the stage where they were able to reach mainstream employment. Most recently, I was managing the um, successful pilot initiative, the Employer Disability Information Service. And everything that I do is always aimed at trying to provide access for disabled people to mainstream jobs. I was honoured to be voted um, onto the board of directors of the Independent Living Movement of Ireland, and I represent them on employment issues at government level. So I'm really delighted that I can advocate for those, those of us who maybe haven't got the right ears to bend when it comes to inclusive employment. So it's all about inclusive employment and disability management in the workplace. And since I've gone out on my own, doing disability equality inclusion it's just been fantastic because the coronavirus for me was a gift everybody has recently acquired disabilities and i do see that there's a real need for organizations to actually start having those difficult discussions about disability in the workplace and in particular disclosure yeah yeah and i know that's something that we touched on before we started recording and maybe we start there with this idea of having those difficult discussions like what do they look like? What are the pitfalls? How can we support organisations to have better, more inclusive conversations? One of the toughest things, I think, is that we love to write a policy and then never look at it again. We love to write a disclosure, a disability and inclusion policy, and this is everything that we're going to do. And then we put it in a lovely folder and we put it on a shelf to get dusty. Instead of actually living it or taking it down from that dusty shelf and making it a live document, we end up not actually embracing the diversity within our organisation. A lot of times that comes down to the bias that we all have. But really, most of the time, it's because disability is still considered the poor cousin when it comes to diversity and inclusion. It's the it's the less sexy side of G&I, I feel. And a lot of people don't always want to embrace it, in yeah. particular because it means people have to expose their vulnerabilities. So when it comes to senior management, they're definitely not going to admit to having a disability, even though in reality, more than likely, they've acquired age-related disabilities. You know, we all kind of have these fancy new glasses whenever we get our eyes tested and we realise that um, that actually they're not as good as they used to be. With age, they all start to fall apart. Yeah. But did you know you actually start to lose your hearing before your sight? And yet we don't have cool, funky earphones or uh, hearing aids. I like to think these ear pods will one day be hearing aids as well. And that that basically disability can just be a part of normal life instead of it being an exceptional or special need. I think we have to kind of change the fundamental concept of, of how we think about disability. It's always seen as a negative. 
And mm-hmm. in my opinion, disabled people are actually amazing, in- innovative problem solvers. Every day we have to solve a different problem. And I think that's what makes us such creative people. Yeah. But the difficulty is, how do you actually recognize that? And how could we change the idea that our ideal employee or our ideal manager actually has a disability? When I do an exercise with with companies and I ask them to imagine what their ideal candidate might be if they're looking at inclusive recruitment or if they're looking at promotional opportunities, disability doesn't enter into it. Mm. They often want someone who's innovative, who will think differently. And it just we just don't think about the creativity and the problem solving that disability brings. Yeah. So it's always seen as a bad thing. And, you know, people say their ideal leader wouldn't have any vulnerabilities. But actually, in reality, and the research shows it, when a leader is vulnerable, everybody else feels more comfortable with being vulnerable themselves and therefore being more authentic and essentially happier at work. (laughs) <laughs> yes, this is it. This is the ultimate goal, really, isn't it? Um, and we did kind of touch on this idea of vulnerability before we started talking. And I suppose when I've spoken about it before, it's been very much in the being publicly vulnerable and sharing your vulnerabilities and sharing a bit more about yourself and your personal side publicly. But actually, I suppose what I've grown to embrace more is the vulnerability between individuals and having that sense of vulnerability on a one to one basis where you're you're taking a great risk because you're trying to build connection with someone by declaring something or by stating what it is that you need or what it is that you want and you face rejection. So either you get connection or you get rejection. What you're striving for is connection, but you risk rejection. And so there is great risk. and. And people can shy away from taking that risk to begin with. And I think that's part of the problem, because if we're always going to make sure that we're only going to show our best side, then we're never going to actually change the culture. Yeah. Often what I talk about with people is generally, first off, what exactly is disability? It isn't always wheelchair and it definitely is not a cool black bionic arm that everybody can see most of the time. Disability is a difficulty that someone is having that can be accommodated. But asking for that accommodation can often feel like you're asking for something extra, for something more. And you can be you can make yourself feel like you're asking for something that is extra when actually all you're asking for is an assist to be able to bring you to the same level as everyone else and to make you as effective as you possibly can be. Yeah. When it comes to reasonable accommodations, all of the research shows that the biggest accommodation that most people need is understanding, time and um, just openness. And that's that's what actually most employees need, just the ability to be able to actually request what they need to make them as effective as possible. Now, of course, the difficulty that we have in Ireland, especially in the Republic of Ireland, is that each of the different areas of life has different difficulties for a disabled person. So, for example, when I got married, that was the worst thing I could have done because, obviously, as a married woman, my husband can look after me and I don't need any medical cards or any prosthetic limbs. I can oh, just lie around. Oh, of course you don't. Yes. Be, be minded <laughs> by my husband, you know. So, <laughs> so when, it comes, 
<laughs> so when it comes to getting personal assistance or getting housing or getting transport, there are huge barriers for disabled people in Ireland, in particular transport outside of them, you know, the main urban areas. Yeah. So all of these things have a huge impact on the ability of disabled people to take up employment. But at the same time, there are many great schemes at the moment that give assistance to disabled people looking for work. And of course, there is lots more support than there ever was before for employee employers as well. And of course, they can always call you and me to be able to, to help them focus. Because for me, I suppose, I did learn that lesson the hard way. You know, facing into those adverse and challenging conditions, I acquired my disability when I was 18. So it was only when I was trying to access employment and after college, after leaving the supportive environment of college, that I realized that this disability thing, it just wasn't going away. Yeah. And I needed to be able to find a way to actually discuss it and talk about it and be able to request accommodations. And I often tell the story, I'll share it with you again, if you don't mind, yeah. of the first time I ever tried to talk about my disability. I wanted to disclose so badly. I wanted to make sure that I was being as, that I was being as honest as possible. I wanted to be able to actually request all the accommodations that I needed. And losing my limbs when I was 18 had been really tough to, to get through. Yes, I was very grateful to be alive, but it looked to me like the road back to independence was going to be really, really tough. And of course, the doctor said, maybe I wouldn't be able to wear prosthetic limbs. So after fighting so hard for my independence, going back and completing my leaving cert and then getting my degree, I wanted to express how driven, determined and able to problem solve I was just by going through all of that. So I decided when the interviewer asked me in my first proper corporate interview, when he asked me to tell him a little bit about myself, I just put both sweaty hands on the table and I looked at the table so I wouldn't be distracted by him. And I began to tell him all about the horror and the awfulness of being in hospital and how awful it was to lose my limbs and how amazing I was to have overcome all of that. And I was probably quite heavy on the uh, adjectives and on the gore. <laughs> and I probably overshared substantially. And I got to the stage where after about 14 minutes of my talking nonstop, I looked up and he was in lots of tears. You know, the kind of crying that you can't breathe, you know, the yeah. sort of gasping, <laughs> gasping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I had to run out of the room, try and get him a glass of water. My prosthetic arm crushed the glass of water, splashing it all over me. I was trapped between one door and another because I had no security swipe. And it was just absolutely ridiculous. And of course, I didn't get that job. In fact, I hope, that, I'm sure that person hopes to never see me again. But it was a real learning opportunity for me yeah. because I had totally overshared and I had let the disclosure of my disability become a barrier. And I suppose I had kind of pushed the envelope a little bit as well. Mm. I think the best way to avoid those conversations and make them into more positive experiences is to have that open and honest conversation inside the organization. And really the question you're asking yourself is, what would I want to be asked if I was in that situation? Mm. And I think that's where we don't put ourselves in my plastic shoes, you know? Yeah. I always, I often say, you know, you have to walk a, a mile in my, in my Barbie feet. 
to really know the challenges. The interesting thing was I found that in the beginning that my skills were invisible and employers could only see the disability and the potential right. problems I created. And it was only really by getting a family friend to get me my to help me with my first job that all of that fell away. Because having having on my CV that someone else had trusted me to do a little bit of work meant that other people could do it also. Oh, interesting. And it, it validated my ability to work like nothing else had before. Now what you find is that those diversity and inclusion initiatives are becoming much more popular, but it it really is now focusing on disability in a way it wasn't before. As I said, COVID and COVID-19 and the coronavirus has thrown up a lot of disability issues that were probably latent and under the surface, but that maybe we weren't dealing with before. Mm. Mental health, dissatisfaction sometimes in the workplace and a lack of authenticity and happiness from a lot of people just doing the rounds, just doing what you need to do. And that is never going to make for a great organisation. No way. Definitely not. Um, There are a couple of things I suppose I'd love to understand from a couple of different perspectives. And and we briefly spoke about this before we started recording and you've mentioned it just now, shown it. um, The request for accommodation from an individual perspective, but managing that from a organizational or from an individual manager perspective as well. So can we talk about those, both of those perspectives in a a little bit more detail? First off, I think what I always say to organizations is you just have to acknowledge that not not everybody's going to disclose. Not everybody's going to feel comfortable. So I think you have to start from a place of knowing that you're never going to get 100% compliance um, in the area of disclosure. All that you can do is your very best to make sure that the culture is open. So talking about it, having discussions, doing events, and not just on the International Day of People with Disabilities on the 3rd of December, doing it just as a normal way of doing it. I loved when you were chatting to uh, my friend Claire Canelli of Inclusive Cork, and she mentioned how they didn't want her to speak at a women's event because they wanted to keep her for the disability event, even though she is a woman. (laughs) It's stuff like that. It's trying to silo each different, I suppose, category of um, diversity, you know, those nine grounds, (laughs) only treating one you know, because you can't time. You can't have multiple. (laughs) You can't be a gay disabled woman. It's impossible, obviously. So it's (laughs) it's I think I think you have to really dig down deep into why are you separating them out? Why is diversity only allowed if you take a particular box in a particular way? Hmm. That's the whole point about diversity and difference. It is always different. And please don't get excited if you've replaced all of your pale male and stale senior executives with their female counterparts who went to the same school and are exactly the same, just oh, female. Yeah. I mean, please. Yeah. That, yeah. Is, that does not diversity make. I think it's really important. I saw something on LinkedIn, uh, I was going to say not too long ago, it was probably a good few months ago now. And, and in it, they it might have been a poll you know, when polls were first became popular before they became a little bit tired, but it did have something like the different options that you've kind of presented there where you have 
people who went to similar schools, they went to similar universities. But oh, and get this, there there were people of color there and there were women on the board, et cetera, et cetera. But they probably all think in the same way because they have a similar background, whereas the other one was I think it was all male, let's say, and all a similar age. But actually there was um, someone from, you know, people had different backgrounds. And the question was, which one of these is more diverse? And it was just such an interesting and provocative way to look at it, because the assumption people probably go like, oh, yeah, it's the one that has the women and it's the one that has those underrepresented groups there and actually really when you dug into it, it's the people who are bringing the diversity of thought like that's I talk about that all the time is you want people whose values align with your own, but you want to bring in that diverse thinking so that you can be challenged on your assumptions. You can be challenged in the way you currently do things and you can grow and innovate and develop as a company. Exactly. And that's what was so important for me about the the Canadian disability management approach, because it's state sponsored. And what they do is they bring people together to agree what disability management strategy would be so that you have agreement and consensus from people. But of course, trying to get consensus from a group of employees is going to be really tough. So everybody's going to be like a perfect compromise. Everybody's going to be unhappy, but there's going to be one element of it that people can work with. I mean, you're missing such an opportunity. And in my mind, when we fail to include disability in our diversity and inclusion initiatives, then are we really being inclusive at all? Are we actually including all women? Are we including everybody? from the BAME community? Are we including everybody from the LGBT plus community? Well, not really, unless disability is within that. Because disability is one of those strange groups that you do join much more frequently than people might wish. So you're really talking about, what is it now, nearly 15% people with a disability in Ireland? Wow. That's a huge group of people. Yeah. And what I've encountered often, because obviously, 80 to 85 percent in some countries that might be 90 percent across the world most of those disabilities are acquired during their working life so they're more like me than than someone who was born with a disability it's acquired through an accident or whatever it might be during the working ages of 18 and 64. so that huge market of employees and potential customers is so often ignored and i come across situations where somebody gets a diagnosis so maybe, you know, they, they, they're, they're experiencing strange symptoms. They go to a doctor, they get a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, for example. And because they haven't realized and they haven't been able to manage it up until that point, they often leave the workplace with the full support of the employer. However, then they go home, start to manage their disability and get back up to a creative level and and an ability level where they can go back to work. But that path back to work as a disabled person is nearly non-existent because they're now carrying the extra baggage. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they should never have left the workplace in the first place. Yeah. Maybe if employers were further supported, it would be a lot easier to transition into a different type of role for a short period of time. And more importantly, the company isn't going to lose that excellent expertise that could have been with them for years. We all know 
you know, when people retire and that brain drain from an organization, it can be devastating. Yeah, the cliff, the, uh, what do they call it? It's it's the cliff, isn't it? So exactly. you have someone who's working at this really high level and then suddenly they're just gone from the organization. And there's no contingency planning. Yeah. So I would love to see that that large market of untapped potential when employing disabled people extends not just to new employees, but also to those older or other employees who required disability indifference, whatever that might be. Yeah. Whether that's, you know, as we talked about earlier, gradually losing your sensory abilities because of age or maybe just mental health because of things like the coronavirus making us really pinning us to our collar and kind of pushing us into situations where we weren't comfortable and we had to deal with them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so there's so much there that I would love to unpick. Um, if we come back to this, the idea of having those difficult conversations. So as a manager and someone comes to you and they're being vulnerable and how to how to manage that in a supportive way, like how what what suggestions would you have for people? And this could be more maybe from a training in advance in case someone does encounter that issue so that you're prepared to have that conversation. And it's not a case of, you know, scurrying around, finding out, well, how do we support this in the workplace? It's more from a prevention is better than cure perspective. Exactly. So that's why organisations can start now by by sitting down and actually crafting a realistic disability and disclosure policy or Mm, maybe separate policies. Yeah. Sit down and write it in the way that you would want it to be written. And, you know, we don't need policies to be 19 pages, please. Can we write it and say something that someone's going to read (laughs) and and implement and use? (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, have something that actually is able to be agile and to change with with the organization, but also that, that tackles the difficult questions. And those questions are really well laid out in a head um, kind of guide on disclosure. It's aimed at students, but it has really good guide, a really good sort of outline of a guide for how someone is going to ask those questions. So who is the disclosure aimed at? What is being disclosed? How is that information going to be treated? And you must address that confidential nature of such important information. And I'm not talking just about a GDPR perspective. I'm also talking about who will that information be shared with and why would they need to know? So somebody might be happy to disclose to a HR manager or their manager, but they mightn't want their peers to know. Mm. The best way to approach that is to reiterate how the company is inclusive of everybody so that anybody who has any reasonable accommodation requests will be facilitated. There's also a lovely guide to, um, and I suppose it's it's a passport, really. It's the Reasonable Accommodations Passport that was devised with ICTU and IBEC, and that's available to download as well. That's a great way to open up that conversation and to try and tick some of those boxes that you would need to know. So you might need to know about medical stuff, but you don't need to know everything. Yeah. Like, I'll often talk about my my disability. And again, I'll overshare. Obviously, that's my problem. You're never (laughs) going to get to the end of this podcast with me talking all the time. But I do sometimes overshare. And I have noticed that when I do that, it's to my own detriment. 
because then I'm telling people too much about a disability and they don't always understand the context that it's in. Mm -hmm. So when I'm talking about a broken ankle and I'm laughing and joking about it because I have I have a shelf of broken ankles at home over the years, over the 25 <laughs> years of having prosthetic limbs. But for them, it's like, oh, my God, that's a disaster. They don't understand the con the context within which I'm talking about. And that can be the problem with oversharing as well. So I think it's it's a matter of making sure that you're sharing the information that is relevant and useful. I, again, that comes from our head, relevant and useful information to the job. So yeah. we often, in particular employers and HR managers, we ask for the name of the disability. The name of the disability tells you nothing. It's okay. the impact, the impact yeah. on the individual. And if you have all of those um, policies and procedures there, you can really empower line managers and supervisors to have those conversations, to get out the reasonable accommodation passport, grab a cup of coffee and sit down and talk to somebody. Yeah. But you see, that would be in a situation where somebody wants to disclose and where the information is made known at an earlier stage. The reality is that most Disability becomes present when someone's having a difficulty. Yeah. So it's often, the, it's not always the employee that you like and the employee that's been a top performer the whole time. It might actually be the person who's been a thorn in your side for the last two years. Yeah. And the reason that they've struggled and they've had difficulties, it's possibly because they weren't being accommodated and maybe they didn't feel like they would be embraced if they disclose their mental health difficulty or the fact that they were going through a horrific divorce or something awful had happened. I, I think that's where we have to remember that it isn't always the employee that we like. It's not our favourite. Mm. It will often be the, the person who's been having difficulty for some time before that disclosure makes itself known. Yeah. So as I often say to people, you have to stop acting like a human and act like a proper manager. <laughs> And be embracing and ask yourself that question. What, what would I get out of it if I was disclosing? Like, yeah. why would I bother? Yeah. And I think we have, to, we have to be brave enough to ask ourselves that question. Yeah. What, what are they getting out of it if they tell us about their disability? That's a really interesting point. Yeah. We don't ask ourselves that question. Maybe because we're afraid of the answer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely nothing. They're not getting anything out of it by sharing because we don't know how to accommodate them. Um, exactly. There's a couple of things I'd love to to drill into, to dive into a little bit more there. Um, the, the thing that sort of stands out to me is if an employee has been, say, underperforming for a couple of years, in my mind, the manager should have had that conversation much earlier on created that safe environment for someone to disclose if they feel comfortable doing so, but but kind of not in a forced way. But I think those those things around performance definitely need to be addressed a little bit earlier on. And it is the responsibility of the manager to have those difficult conversations. And, and they are difficult conversations to have. Definitely, especially if somebody is new to their own disability. And if they don't know what mm. they need, what, what can help them to, to be accommodated, it can become a really difficult situation. And in particular, if, if you know, if the senior leader or the manager is kind of saying, well, could you not go and get some help for that? That is never going to go down well. 
you go off and deal with that outside of the work and don't be bringing your problems into the work. Go off and sort yourself, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. I, I, I see a huge shift um, in in how we approach everything work related in. And I mean this in a really positive way, because previously and I've seen people describing it as you check yourself at the door when you come in here and you don't bring the outside world into work. And equally, you don't bring work home, whereas there's much more and and maybe <clears throat> it was definitely happening pre COVID, but maybe it's been absolutely exacerbated by COVID because we're essentially looking into people's homes when we're having conversations with them. You know, mm -hmm. the majority of people are working from home, working remotely and still doing that from what I can see. There's a handful of people that uh, I'm connected with who are back in the office. But for the majority of people, it's still working from home. Um, the other question I had, Jonah, was this um, the idea around the reasonable accommodations passport. Can you share the kinds of things that are included within that or how to facilitate a discussion with someone using that? Usually um, there's a couple of questions within the tool itself mm. and it might be, well, you know, what is the medical condition? What is the impact? How does it impact on you and what can the organisation do to help? And the thing about reasonable accommodations is, again, it, it's a constantly changing environment. Um, and I think you have to create a system that can be reviewed on a regular basis because disability in many cases can fluctuate. So, for example, with me, I usually get prosthetic limbs every two years. So it means that I have a peak of about nine months of running around like as if I have no prosthetic limbs. And the rest of the time I might need a wheelchair or I might need my stick a little bit more. But it's I suppose it's being able to have that flexibility within it to mm. review whether the accommodations are working, not just for the employer, but also for the employee. So to have those conversations and really to have that active listening piece mm. that we spend our lives talking to managers about, to ask the question, well, tell us about the impact, but only focus on work. You know, we end up sometimes hearing about, you know, or receiving psychiatric assessments or educational psychologists' explanations of dyslexia they aren't going to help us because yeah. that's really focusing on that medical model of disability. And I know Claire Canelli covered it already, so no need to go into it again. But really, we need to be thinking about it as the human rights approach to disability, mm. the social model, the fact that when you accommodate, disability can disappear, but only if you have the process in place to be able to put those accommodations and to have those conversations. So I often end up talking about it like, and I know I stole it from the LGBT plus community. I talk about it as coming out with your disability. Okay. Because yeah, yeah. that is what you're doing. Yeah. And it's about creating that environment that you're easy, that it's easy to talk about your disability. It's easy to be different and that people want to be different. And I think that's what's one of the most important things. Who am I? I'm disabled. I'm also a woman, but maybe I don't want to tell you that. And I think it's about creating those those open conversational opportunities to be able to talk about it yeah. and to enable the coming out of a disability. Yeah. And of course, as I said already, to acknowledge that that what a disability is means very different things to very different people. As we touched on briefly when we were chatting, 
the idea that the disability community in Ireland is moving towards the UK approach of calling ourselves disabled people because we're disabled by the society we find ourselves in, as opposed to a person first language where you say person with a disability. And of course, it's further confused by the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with a Disability, because of course, in many other languages, person with a disability is the accepted term. But we are moving towards disabled person as an identity, yeah. because unfortunately, disability is me, and disability is also many other things, but it's part of me. It shapes how I think, it shapes how I interact. And it gives me different responses and different ways of thinking. You know, we saw this, myself and my husband saw this amazing sports car drive by and he's like, oh my God, that's an amazing car. I'm saying, no way, man, no room for your chair in the back. So it does change <laughs> the way that you think. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. We have to remove those labels and make sure that there's pride in difference. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Shonit, what do you think are the biggest challenges for disabled people? So from what I'm hearing, from what you're saying, it's the initial getting into the organisation in the first place. And at what stage do you disclose, if at all? But then once you're in the organisation, you know, what are the challenges there? Or, or maybe we talk about some of the, the biggest challenges that people have. Definitely, you have to look at the whole, I suppose, employment relationship. So the recruitment side, yes, yeah. to make sure you're as inclusive as possible. And a lot of a lot of organizations tend to sort of have um, a work experience initiative, but they don't make the link into their mainstream recruitment processes. So right. they, might, yeah. they might get involved with the prog with the pro program like the Ability Program. Yeah. And there is lots of them around the country, or the Ahead Willing Able Mentoring Program. But I know when I was working in AHEAD, I know it's changing, but a lot of organizations wouldn't take the learning from the WAM program and apply it to their mainstream processing. Yeah, yeah. Which was, in my opinion, a loss because the whole point about the AHEAD WAM program was the learning that was that was coming out of it and the, the free training that employers can get as well. Um, but of course, the untapped pool of amazing talent that they're getting as well. But that's only the start. That's the start of the recruitment and um, employment relationship, the recruitment side of it, inclusive recruitment. You also have to look at the end of the employment relationship and whether somebody is leaving the organization because of a disability mm. and whether that can be accommodated and whether the person really, really needs to leave the workplace. Can yeah. there be a way to work through it? where somebody maybe takes a, a kind of career break to be able to, to start to manage their disability. And of course, the most important thing is during the employment relationship, the management. And the secret to that employee management is to create an environment where disclosure is the norm. I find by having one of those recruitment and inclusive recruitment initiatives, and you get younger people who are very confident and have no problem talking about their disability pride, they can often kind of, you know, start the, the domino effect and they can often encourage other people within the organisation to be proud of their disability and to talk about it. Yeah. Talk about the fact that disability is, is welcomed. And I think having those conversations, asking yourself the question, well, why would you bother talking about disability in this organisation? What do I get out of it? 
if I was to disclose, can produce really interesting conversations and can produce really interesting, I suppose, training areas as well. Mm. And there's so many resources out there. I mentioned the Ahead of WEM programme. But don't forget, Sea Change has a fantastic workplace program as well that is free as far as I understand. Maybe it isn't actually, but Sea Change will have all the information. But it's a fantastic workplace program all about managing mental health and having those difficult discussions. Because we imagine that disability is other people. In fact, it's all of us. Hmm. As my grandmother used to say, if we're lucky enough to live long enough, we'll acquire a disability. Yeah. So I think we have to remember that it isn't the unusual side of, of other minority groups. It's really a rich, untapped pool of amazing talent and people who will think differently and challenge you to think differently. I mean, if you actually look back at it, the history of disability is full of amazing things that were devised for disability, but have been used by the mainstream. And I'm yeah. talking about like, uh, in fact, you can hear all about this in this um, in this great TED talk. It's all about um, size and average. Is there such a thing as average? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and you've probably seen it. It's the example taken from the American Air Force, where they wanted to find the average pilot so that they could make a chair that would fit everybody. And they discovered that there is no such thing as average. There was nobody mm. who fit the average because yeah. that's just the way it works. Yeah. And it's a fascinating way of looking at universal design in general. If we're designing for the average person, we're designing for nobody. If we're designing our recruitment processes for the average person, we're not including disability. If all of your first stage interviews are all done online, forget it. You already have, um, I suppose, pushed disability out of that side of it because maybe the platform that you're using maybe isn't accessible. So I think it's hugely important to remember that if you're not including disability, you're not really being diverse, in my opinion. Yeah. And you're yeah, missing yeah. out on all this great talent and fantastic customers and, you know, the market segment of people with disabilities and their friends and families actually makes up approximately eight trillion US dollars worldwide. Wow. So when you say that figure to companies, they, they're like shocked. Yeah. There's also so much research on the return on disability. So when you invest in a disabled employee, they're more likely to be more loyal. They'll go over and above for you. And that's just the fact because we might have a longer struggle. I had to apply for 10 times more jobs than my non-disabled peers. Wow. That's that's why I'll go over and above for you if you give me yes. a job. <laughs> but but it's this idea of inclusion and belonging. And exactly. I think it, it applies across the board. If someone creates an environment where I feel fulfilled, where I feel I can really shine and my manager supports me in that environment, then I'm definitely going to stay for longer. And if you have difficulties with the process and you know that it's going to take you 10 times more applications than your your non-disabled peers, then you're definitely not going to put in the effort to look for another job if you're really happy where you are. Exactly. And I think that's that's one of the beauty, the, the beautiful things of disability as well, is that, you know, when you're looking for loyal employees, we don't always think disabled people, but actually they would more than likely statistically be the most loyal. Yeah. Or that was the case. We never know. The next generation coming up behind us might have, I hope, an easier time of it. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, this is it. When you cover those problems of disclosure, I think that can be a huge way to just have an open, a more open culture and everybody is happier. And of course, the one thing I forgot to mention about disclosure or telling someone about the disability is the way that you might actually like partially disclose. So I'll tell you about my my prosthetics because they're kind of cool and funky and, you know, they're kind of part Terminator. But will I talk to you about my mental health? Will I? Am I going to, you know, say to you, hi, I'm a newbie. I'm going to tell you about the worst time of my life. Mm. It's never going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we have to remember that those conversations, yes, they're difficult, but there are so many things in our power that we can do to actually make it easier to put yeah. ourselves in their plastic feet. Yes, exactly. Now, if there is one practical thing that someone listening today can do, some action that they can take as a result. And anyone who listens to the podcast, anyone who listens to me speak, I love to make things as practical and action orientated as possible. What can they do? What, you know, just one thing that someone can do that is the first small step towards creating better understanding for themselves. I think having a look at the inclusion policies that you already have, are they are they actually driven by data? Do you know mm. how many disabled people you have? I mean, statistically, if you have an organization of 50 people, you have lots of disability in your organization, but you might not be aware of it. Mm. So it might be an idea to maybe have a little look at whether you can have some active engagement to have a look to see what your statistics are like. Yeah. Now, you and I both know that that will only be the tip of the iceberg because you have to follow that up with, with a policy that looks at what disclosure is, why is it important, what happens to people when they do, who do they talk to, and addresses that trust and confidentiality that goes beyond just general detection. We're talking about how can people trust the process yeah. and nobody will trust it if somebody um, you know, has a conversation about their mental health issues and then they overhear themselves being talked about in the bathroom. Oh, you yeah. know, so yeah. those kind of things you have to really be careful of. But I do think that what each of us can do right now to be more inclusive is to have a look at the policy that exists versus the practice. And how would you like to be addressed if that was you? If you were in that situation, how would you change it? Having a disability subcommittee or a disability employee resource group, even in a small organization, can be hugely powerful. To have that allyship, to have another, I suppose, peer group that you can bounce off. And it also can help to push things like a self-disclosure policy and to push active engagement yeah. on looking at how many disabled people you have. And I think that will help to address the bias within the organization, especially that affinity bias that we all have. And in particular, that ability bias that we all have, yeah. whereby we imagine that disabled people aren't as good or as happy as um, non-disabled people. But you have to remember the disability paradox is that many disabled people leave very full 
and independent and excellent quality of life. Um, you know, they have fantastic lives, but most people without a disability seem to think that we have an undesirable daily existence. And that yeah. just isn't the case. I have yeah. a lovely life. Thank you very much. And thank- <laughs> well, thankfully, we have you shown it to, you know, to toot that horn to to tell people about what it's like and it's not all doom and gloom and it's not something to feel negative about and I love this idea of having a disability superpower exactly I love this idea of having the disability ERG and creating that allyship and for me and this has come up on the podcast before it's getting that senior sponsorship and showing that it's it's important in this organization to support this um Coming to the end of the podcast now, and I would love to know, and you, you're a listener of the podcast, so you know what I'm going to ask you now, is what makes you <laughs> happier at work, Shonad? For me, it's always about trying to make the world a better place. And mm. that sounds so cheesy, but it is what drives me. Yeah, And I think I have a very unique take on it because of the accident that, that happened in 1997 where I lost my three limbs. I don't... I don't have time to waste on things that aren't important. That's yeah. how I've always felt. And I think it's it's a real advantage that I only want to do something that I find fulfilling. I only want to do things whereby I improve the happiness level of other disabled people. Yeah. I want to leave the world in a better situation than I than I found it. And I think that that's what drives me. Yeah. to be happier at work that's what makes me excited yeah. is to actually try and spread the disability message and spread the the word that disability is a great thing and really make the world more inclusive for disabled people including yeah. myself exactly exactly and it's such i mean that's such an aspirational goal i think it's it's so nice to hear that um if people want to connect with you, if they want to find out more about what you do um, in your business, what's the best way they can do that? As I said at the start, um, the best way is because, as I said, my name is impossible to spell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so all of my social media handles is a mixture of bionic woman underscore IE. But but really, kind of the easiest way probably is is to find me on LinkedIn. And it's just simply bionic woman. Thank you so much for your time today. I so enjoyed this conversation we could probably talk all day about everything that we've been talking about but thank you for being so open and for coming on the podcast and for sharing yourself i absolutely loved it i love your podcast so it's a real honor to be invited on thank you so much Eva. you're so welcome that was shown at Omuraku and I really hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. I'm going to share a summary of some of the key points that we made during the discussion. But before I do that, I would love to know what you thought of today's episode. Please connect on LinkedIn, Aoife O'Brien, A-O-I-F-E-O apostrophe B-R-I-E-N on LinkedIn or happier at work.ie on Instagram and get involved. Let me know what you thought of today's episode. Some of the key points we discussed were the fact that there often exist policies, but they are created never to be looked at again, rather than creating a policy with a view to 
living it in the organization and we need to embrace diversity in organizations. Disability tends to be that less sexy side of diversity and inclusion conversations as well. We also need to bear in mind some age-related disabilities, so things like requiring glasses and hearing aids. Oftentimes, disability is seen as a negative, but actually what people who have disabilities or, or disabled people, as I learned during the conversation, are they tend to be very good problem solvers. We defined disability then as a difficulty that can be accommodated. And it's seen as asking for something extra, but there needs to be reasonable accommodations within the workplace. And the kinds of accommodations that should be expected would be things like understanding or potentially additional time and definitely openness. So being open to meeting people from different backgrounds. When it comes to those accommodations that we mentioned, there's a couple of different aspects to that. So there's the requesting the accommodation. So that's from the individual perspective and the individual needs to know that what those accommodations should be, but also managing those accommodations. And from the manager's perspective, it should be what would I want if I was in that situation? What Joan had found as well was sometimes that her skills were invisible and this made it much harder to succeed at work as well. We spoke about the fact that it's not likely that we're going to get 100% compliance when it comes to requesting accommodations and being able to fulfil those accommodations as well. But it's about creating a culture of openness and not just a box ticking exercise We spoke about disability and the disclosure policy, making sure that it's agile, that it's it's updated on an ongoing basis and that it's actively used within the workplace and that people know about it. And it's about the who, the what, the how and who it will be shared with, because it does need to be confidential. We spoke as well about the reasonable accommodations passport and how it is relevant and useful information. And it's more about the impact on the individual rather than naming the disability. We need to also question what are they getting out of it by disclosing or by not disclosing. We spoke as well about the work experience initiative, and I was curious you know, about how to bring this to life a little bit more and to think about the specific phases around recruitment. Now, this is not yet in mainstream recruitment, but the first phase is about the recruit, you know, the actual recruitment itself. The second area then is to think about the end of the relationship and whether or not the person was accommodated. And then during the relationship, it's thinking about the employee relationship management and whether or not disclosure is the norm. The underlying thing here is that people need to have trust in the process and it's not thinking that someone is going to overhear them being spoken about in the office. And it's having a look as well at the policy versus the actual practice in reality. We spoke about the importance of having a disability ERG and building allyship for disability in the workplace as well and not having this ability bias. 
I will be back again next week with another solo episode of the Happier at Work podcast and I will speak to you then. If you have any suggestions, if there's any burning questions you have or any topics that you would like covered on the podcast, as always, do feel free to reach out to me directly, Aoife at happieratwork.ie. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Happier at Work podcast. I'm delighted to have you here. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd love if you could rate or review the podcast or share it with a friend. You'll find me on the website happieratwork.ie.